Hi there, I'm Will. And I'm Ted. And this is It Seemed Like a Good Idea. On this show, we take a look at uniquely Canadian feats, facts, and flubs that make this country the ingenious place that it is. We wrote a whole book about it, actually, called... Oddly enough... It Seemed Like a Good Idea. On each show, we share some all-true stories about a different theme, and today's is Thinking Outside the Box. Now, really, all our shows are about thinking outside the box, but as we've said before, there's outside the box, there's out of bounds, and then there's redesigning the box. That's what this is about, stuff that's so out there, it's hard to tell where the box even was. But we'll do our best. So let's begin by thinking big, really big. Aircraft carrier big. Let's start with Project Habakkuk. Nineteen forty one and forty two were the darkest years of the Second World War. Britain was the last holdout against the German onslaught, and they were desperate for supplies from North America. Now back then cargo planes didn't have the range to cross the ocean without refueling, and that meant the only way to get stuff to Britain was by ship, through the treacherous waters of the North Atlantic. Already tough to navigate, those waters were made even more deadly by nimble packs of German submarines known as U-boats. Merchant ships traveled in convoys, escorted by British and Canadian warships, but even the best efforts of the navies couldn't prevent staggering losses of men and materials to the U-boat torpedoes. Fighter planes also didn't have the range to provide air support. Way out on the ocean, what could they do? How could you build safe, cheap ships? How could you protect them and their crews? Well, Geoffrey Pike thought he had the answer. Jeffrey Pike. Should we all know him? That depends. Pike was an eccentric British polymath, there's our vocabulary builder for today, uh, who never fit into a single box himself. Dating back to World War I, he had been a foreign correspondent, an escaped prisoner of war, a spy, an investor who made and lost a fortune, the founder of a progressive school, and an inventor. And he was well-known and connected enough to have the ears of some powerful people in Britain. So Pike had jumped polymath style into the war effort. Let me just point out here that a polymath is someone expert in many fields, which is not the same as polygamist. You're absolutely right. We'll get to polygamy later on. Anyway, Pike had a wide range of potential solutions for big problems. They were clever, but they were often too complex to be practical. Uh, he suggested pinpointing enemy aircraft by attaching microphones to barrage balloons. He came up with a complicated variation on a snowmobile for a proposed invasion of occupied Norway. Even though snowmobiles had already been invented in Canada back in 1922 by Armand Joseph Bombardier. But we'll get back to Canada in a second. But Pike's next enthusiasm was something called supercooled water. Supercooled water. So wouldn't that be ice? Well, actually, no. Here's the odd thing. For water to freeze solid, the molecules need something to bond to or, or to crystallize around. Now, this could be impurities in the water or the water molecules themselves if they bump around enough. But if you take purified water and keep it very still, you can actually drop its temperature below freezing and it'll stay liquid because the molecules aren't moving enough to bond. 
Then, if you disturb it, it will instantly turn to ice. It looks pretty cool, and you can find, in fact, a lot of videos online of people demonstrating this with plastic water bottles and freezers. Anyway, Pike became fascinated with using this as a weapon, spraying things with supercooled water and freezing them solid, uh, creating instant defenses or immobilizing enemy material. And then he thought of North Atlantic shipping losses, which led him to his next idea in the fall of 1942, an ice ship. Cheap, unsinkable, and an apparently endless supply of the material. And why not think big? An unsinkable ice aircraft carrier that could also carry cargo and fighter planes and help guard convoys. So as I understand it, this is not a brand new idea. The Germans experimented with making a floating ice island back before the war, right? You're right. Yeah, essentially something like a flat version of a man-made iceberg. But Pike's ideas got some refinement. A scientist tweaked the supercooled water plant by creating something else, a frozen mixture that was 86% water and 14% wood chips. It was buoyant, turned out to be super strong, it was highly melt resistant, and all but unbreakable. He named it Pikrete, after our man Jeffrey Pike. So imagine an aircraft carrier made of Pikrete. So Pike got the idea to Lord Louis Mountbatten, who got it to British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, who loved it. And this is the bit I love. Mountbatten convinced the Navy to use the idea by firing a revolver at a block of Pikrete and a block of regular ice in a meeting of top commanders. Now, the ice shattered, but the Pikrete <laughs> didn't. And instead, it sent this ricocheted bullet zinging dangerously around the room, nearly maiming all these brass hats. Which goes to show, I guess, that thinking outside the box can sometimes make it dangerous inside the box. Anyway, the plan was approved, maybe just to preserve their lives, and they dubbed it Project <laughs> Habakkuk. The next step, then, was to build a prototype to see if it would work. Where to do that? Well, now, here's a hint. Guess who has lots of wood and cold and ice? Ooh, I'm going to have to think about that one. Okay, yeah, yeah, you got it. That would be us. So, the real deal, uh, the aircraft carrier was to be built in Newfoundland. But first, Canadian scientists and engineers made a prototype at Patricia Lake, Alberta, in Jasper National Park. It was a 1,000-ton model, and it was built by Mennonite and Dukabor conscientious objectors who were doing alternative service. They were never told they were actually helping with a war project. Um, it, the, the whole thing was 18 by 9 meters. It was insulated in wood chips, and it was kept even colder with a refrigeration unit that was powered by just a little one-horsepower motor. So wait, if it's the middle of winter and the whole ship is made of ice, why do they need a refrigeration unit? Well, here's another weird bit of science. It turns out that ice isn't completely stable either. Unless it's super cold, ice show, slowly rather shifts around, and that's known as plastic flow. So the whole idea of the aircraft carrier is that the ship would have shifted and sagged unless it was kept at a temperature colder than minus 16 degrees centigrade. So that meant refrigeration was needed. They'd need ductwork, and they'd probably need a steel frame to shape the ice around for this ship. 
Wow. And don't put your tongue on any part of this ship, I suppose. Uh, did it work? <laughs> well, I didn't hear about any tongues, that, but that's a, great, that's a great bit of advice. The short answer is we never did find out. The prototype on Patricia Lake was completed, but the Habakkuk itself never got built for a whole bunch of reasons. There were a lot of questions. I mean, how do you live, for example, on an ice ship? How do you land a plane on a sheet of ice? And not only that, the project grew to unmanageable proportions. The design kept getting bigger. They'd think bigger and bigger and bigger until finally they were aiming for a ship 1,200 meters long and 180 meters wide. And the landing strip alone, think of it this way, would have stretched six football fields. To be torpedo-proof, the Pycrete hull would have had to be 12 meters thick. Now, that meant that the wood pulp they'd need for Pycrete would actually have caused a paper shortage. Cost estimates started to soar way past the price of, in fact, multiple regular aircraft carriers. And meanwhile, in the time it took to figure all this out, longer-range aircraft had been developed to help protect convoys from land bases. Cargo planes were getting bigger. Project Habakkuk was, forgive me here, put on ice. <laughs> but not forgotten. Well, exactly, as I'm going to leave it to you to explain. For sure. In 2009 and 2010, two different TV series tested the Pycrete idea, with small boats off Alaska and in Portsmouth Harbor, respectively. Because of faulty material in one case and poor design in the other, both boats quickly began to leak uncontrollably. Would the Habakkuk have worked? The answer seems to be possible, but unlikely. But still, the question <laughs> remained afloat. Everyone agreed Pycrete was incredibly strong, and it actually took three summers for the model in Patricia Lake to fully melt. So if it's not for boats, could the stuff be used for something else? Well, in February 2020, at the University of Alberta, engineering professor Arno Kronk was conducting experiments with Pycrete building beams. He hoped the material might be practical for cold weather construction, like Arctic oil rigs, for instance, or more intriguing, on Mars, where it gets even colder. So, was Habakkuk ahead of its time, out of its mind, or is it out of this world? I guess we'll have to wait and see. Well, we're on the topic of boats outside the box, let's think smaller but just as weird. Apart from ice, what's the least likely boat building material you can think of? No. Oh. Well, there's a question I get asked a lot. Um, well, there's a race right here in Port Hope, Ontario, down the Ganaraska River called Float Your Fanny Down the Ganny. And there's a crazy craft part of that race uh, where people float on all kinds of junk. So I'd say you can make something like a boat out of almost anything. but I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with bricks, maybe, or I don't know, cement. Interesting. Okay, cement sounds good. How about pumpkins? How about cardboard? Oh come on! Well, Canadians build and race boats out of all three of those every year. Not to mention bathtubs. The grandparent of all these weird boat races is the annual bathtub race held in Nanaimo, BC. It was started in 1967 when Mayor Frank Ney founded the Loyal Nanaimo Bathtub Society. He would also dress up as a pirate to promote the race. Originally, 
The race was from Nanaimo to Vancouver, but now it starts and finishes in Nanaimo. The whole package, bathtub, motor, and pilot, or should I say bather, has to weigh a minimum of 350 pounds, or about 170 kilograms. The tub craft has to be at least 3 feet 6 inches long, just over a meter, and based on something that at least looks like a bathtub. The motor, maximum 8 horsepower. To finish, you land your tub, run up, and ring a bell. The 2019 race was won by Justin Lofstrom in 1 hour, 2 minutes, 56 seconds, a new record for the super-modified craft. Getting a leg up in an outside-the-box sense was Al White, who rang the bell wielding his artificial limb. Okay, so what about the others? Okay, let's do pumpkins next. Pumpkin boats are raced every fall in Nova Scotia at the Windsor West Hants Pumpkin Regatta. And we're not talking toy boat size either. The late Howard Dill of Windsor held four Guinness World Records for giant pumpkins and created the Atlantic Giant variety. Contestants hollow out one of these monsters, decorate it, and hit the river. The first PVC across the finish line wins. PVC? Yeah, uh, short for personal vegetable craft, <laughs> which, which brings us to concrete and cardboard. Every year, the Canadian Society of Civil Engineering holds a concrete canoe contest for engineering students. The rules say the canoe must be big enough for four and float even when it's full of water. And then you get to race them. Here's a couple of design tips. The more water the canoe displaces, the better it will float. Oh, so meaning that big enough for four actually helps. Surprisingly, yes. And the ingredients in the concrete can be altered, like glass beads filled with air, for example, instead of sand or stone. Lighter, more buoyant. Who knew? You know, you know this is why we're not engineers. Exactly. Though I am tempted by the contest at the University of New Brunswick, where instead of concrete, they have a cardboard boat competition, and the boats must be held together with duct tape. They can be a maximum of three meters, and the tape can only be within eight centimeters on either side of a seam. So in other words, you can't just wrap the whole thing in tape. Exactly. And there's a last requirement. The boats must be raced in a swimming pool by the students' professors. As Dr. Katie Haralampades of UNB put it, I've thought about putting the students in the boat. I've also thought about building little ones, but having it real size and putting a professor in there puts more skin in the game. Not to mention in the water. I guess with the cardboard boats, you could say you're actually turning the box into something else. Or sitting inside it as it sinks. Either way, you're reinventing the box. Which brings us to our last story today about someone who spent a lifetime either hopping from box to box or just plain trampling them. One of our most colorful Canadians, Arthur Foxy Irwin. As in crazy like a... Undoubtedly. Unlike Joffrey Pike, Foxy tackled small problems, but solved them just as unconventionally. So, another polymath. Yeah, and that other P word, too, we mentioned earlier. Uh, but as you know, that's for later. Let's begin where odd things often begin, in Toronto. Arthur Irwin was born there in 1858. The family moved to Boston when he was young, but Irwin never lost touch with the city. He returned a great deal and remained very well known in it. By 1879, 
he was playing professional baseball for the Worcester Ruby Legs. At various times, he was a pitcher, catcher, shortstop, and second baseman, a real utility player. Or a baseball polymath. You could put it that way. Uh, Different positions, different challenges, and dealing inventively with a challenge was really what Foxy was all about. By the 1883 season, he was captain of the Providence Grays. That's when he changed baseball forever. He'd broken two fingers of his left hand, but still needed to play. In those days, only catchers and first basemen used gloves, but Foxy got himself an oversized driving glove, cut and stitched the third and fourth fingers together to make room for padding and his bandages, and played on. The result? Foxy didn't miss a game, and kept using the glove even after his hand had healed. By the 84 season, everyone was using an Irwin glove. Ingenious or what? Indisputably ingenious. And that was only the tip of Foxy's ingenuity iceberg. You see how this episode all, all fits together? <laughs> if, if the baseball glove was all there was to Foxy's story, we wouldn't be telling it. But the man couldn't keep still. By the mid-1890s, with his playing days over, he'd become an entrepreneur. Uh, among other things, he'd founded North America's first pro soccer league, the American League of Professional Football. It only lasted a season, but by then Foxy was on a roll. He was part-owning and managing other baseball teams. Um, His Toronto ball team gave him a chance to open a high-end shoe store in the city. He began promoting the scintillating sport of roller polo. And what exactly is roller polo, remind me? Basically, I'm amazed that you'd forgotten. Basically, it's hockey played on roller skates. And actually, it was very popular in the northeastern United States at the end of the 1800s. By 1902, Foxy was also promoting bicycle racing. He opened and owned tracks in Philadelphia and Atlantic City, New Jersey. He also opened a ballpark in Atlantic City. And then he came up with another sporting innovation or invention, um, a scoreboard that was used in college football uh, games for many years. So all this doesn't mean Foxy had bailed on baseball uh, innovations. He continued scouting, coaching, managing, and part-owning a string of baseball teams, including that one in Toronto. These tasks also called for creative thinking, and Foxy rose to the challenge. Sort of. Needing new talent, he broke contracts to raid other leagues and teams for players. Needing headlines, he redesigned uniforms for the Philadelphia Phillies, was the first to take a team to Bermuda for spring training, and accused others of game-fixing. Needing more wins, he came up with an innovation that involved binoculars and an apartment window across from the ballpark to steal the signs from the opposing teams. For Foxy, there was no outside the box because there was no box. Boundaries seemed to have disappeared. Now, this did not necessarily make him popular. Opinion on Foxy was, shall we say, divided or maybe polarized. On the one hand, the hugely popular author Zane Gray dedicated a book to him. Foxy had coached him in college baseball. Uh, Another person said there was no speedier or brainier fielder and batsman. And later, he was called the clearest sighted and coolest headed manager in the business today. On the other hand, he feuded incessantly with owners and fans. He got sued for libel and was also called, quote, a bug-eyed Canadian with protruding ears and a healthy ego who fancied himself a savant in the art of scientific baseball. And someone else <laughs> mentioned... <laughs> wait for this one. Um, this one's a little more to the point. One of the slimier men in baseball. And in case you missed the point, someone else called him 
probably the most disgusting man I ever knew. Which perhaps brings us to Foxy's biggest step outside the box. In 1921, aged 63, he was diagnosed with stomach cancer. Traveling from New York, where he'd mostly lived for years, to Boston by ship, he apparently committed suicide. After his death, it came out that Irwin's private life had been lived outside the box as well. He had wives and families in both cities. So finally, near the end of this podcast, polymath merges with polygamist. You got it. Irwin had mostly ignored his Boston family for years, leaving them impoverished, and he often mistakenly referred to his Boston son Herbert as Harold, the name of his New York son. What drove Arthur Irwin to do all this? Did he need to outfox everyone, or mainly himself? Well, it, it wasn't a quest for perfection, even with the baseball glove. We can tell you this much. The year before the Irwin glove, he'd set the league record for making the most errors, messing up in over 90% of his games. After the glove, he only messed up in, well, 60% of, of his games. <laughs> so let's say... Let's just say he left room for improvement all around, which really is so Canadian. You know, think big, but never take too much credit. Well, Foxy Irwin's sisters said it best. With Arthur, you never knew. But let's take the last words of this podcast from the book of Habakkuk. Believe it or not, a real book in the Old Testament. I think they sum up everything we've talked about today. Chapter 1, verse 5. Wonder marvelously. For I will work a work in your days, which ye will not believe, though it be told you. Truer words were never spoke. We hope you've wondered marvelously. If you'd like to wonder more, you'll find some of the material from this podcast and a lot more in our book, It Seemed Like a Good Idea. It's published by Scholastic Canada and available in bookstores and libraries everywhere. Let's talk again soon. Seems like a good idea. 